Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. So today we are talking about Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash. It's the first class of this and we'll continue on Wednesday. Now, Snow Crash is one of the two great original cyberpunk books that really changed the land landscape entirely with respect to cyber cyberpunk. And we've covered some books already and biopunk and other types of various punk, but cyberpunk was one of the originals. And Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash, I mean, if you're if you're looking at the two greats, of course, it's um, Gibson's Neuromancer and Stephenson's Snow Crash are the two big ones. And in, for this semester, we're, sometimes I've actually done both in the same semester, but I prefer to do one cyberpunk uh, a semester. So th this semester we're doing Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash. Now the first few pages of Snow Crash are probably the fastest, most unbelievably riveting first ten pages ever written for any novel. <laughs> it's, it's like, I mean, this is how all novels, a lot of novels start out sort of slow and you need to get a hundred pages into it before you sort of finally get the hang of it and what's going on. But Neil Stephenson definitely didn't do that. He said, boom, bang, write the first ten pages, you're riveted. So this is a really interesting style of writing to sort of get you in on it. This, of course, is a dystopian novel. So this is a future that is very advanced, but it's, you know, we've already a, a, a just handed in the assignment and here's the attendance sheet, okay? And so this is a dystopian novel in which, okay, great, in which we have a world that's no longer recognizable from the world that we have today. What's happened to all the great major nations? What's happened to the United States in this novel? It's fragmented. Yeah, balkanization in the worst possible way. It's fragmented completely. And now there is still a federal government, but what does it do? I mean, there's a technically still a government, but what does it do? Go ahead. Everything gets contracted out to other companies and private uh, security firms. Uh-huh. Everything, the, like the Postal Service, everything is all private companies and nothing's done by... But what does the federal government do? <laughs> if everything is contracted out, including the Postal Service, and through, you know, like... They just control um, certain um, areas, but not at all the United States of what it is today. Yeah, they uh, they control very small little patches. Go ahead. They control a lot of uh, the like surve surveillance. So like they kind of spy on people and that's all they really do. That's about it. They spy on people and they have these little enclaves, well guarded. So organized crime is flourishing. They have these little areas so what we have is areas that are controlled by like little mobs 
little gangs. So what we have is a, is a classic situation where we have governments breaking down. And so what Neil Stephenson was doing with this is going through a thought experiment of what the world would look like if the federal government was sort of barricaded into small little enclaves, having no real reach, and gangs, organized crime, had their little areas. Now this is not that unreal, because back, you know, not too many years ago, when organized crime ruled the inner cities, during the times when there were major kingpins in the in the cities that used to uh, rule the cities, uh, the so-called machine politics days, you had the emergence of the mafia. And the emergence of the mafia came about because they couldn't rely on the governmental authorities to protect them. So they had to protect themselves, and you had the mafia. Go ahead. Um, I actually watched a movie or a film called Games of New York, yeah. um, where something similar happened, um, and the gangs took over basically everything. They even like um, appointed people as the government. So not only was the government not really um, important, but or they didn't actually have any power. But even like the figurehead power that they would have had was put there um, to show the power of the gangs. Yeah, that's that's the type of future we're talking about, and that's. That's um, impotence on the level of government to the extreme. So we have actually seen that happen in some countries on this planet. There is one in particular that's still that way. And I'll give you a hint, it's in Africa, often called a, a country that's got contested sovereignty. It's been going on forever. What do you think that might be? Somalia. That's it. Somalia, where you literally have these clans ruling certain areas. There is technically a Somali government, but the Somali government is sort of very marginalized. It's just it's just in some small spot of Mogadishu and they're really trying to make it work, but the reality is they're blasted out of it. They're very much like in Snow Crash. And so what Neil Stephenson's doing is having a thought experiment of what would happen if the entire United States and essentially the world collapsed like that. Now, we're sort of at a time when there are a lot of apocalyptic thinking people out there that are thinking that maybe we're not that far away from something like that happening. With the economies going out of control the way they are, they're sort of worried about that. I don't think we're in that situation. I don't think we're that close. You really have to get far along for that to happen. But Neil Stephan is taking it to the wire and saying, let's say it doesn't happen tomorrow or next year. Let's say it goes out 50 years or 100 years and something like that does happen. What would the world look like? Go ahead. Um, well, I guess the main thing is the violence. And it's just kind of interesting to consider what type of people need to be in that society for the violence to occur when the government loses control. So I know we like to think America is like a civilized um, and all of that, and it's very nice to say like, oh, we're all good people, and there wouldn't be violence even if the government collapsed. But I guess this is kind of saying that that's not necessarily true. And we should yeah. consider what kind of people we really are without control. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, let us say we have this world without control. Okay, but it's connected with the internet, meaning there are electronic connectivities that put people together. Is this somebody's order? 
This is not yours? No. Uh, if anyone claims it, sir. So what happens if there's this electronic connectivity? So you have in the physical world sort of brutal violence, but in the electronic world you have the emergence of some type of semblance of order. Go ahead. Delaney? I lost my thought. I'm sorry. What's that? I said I lost my thought. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Hold on to the thought a little bit longer. It only takes me a second to get you. All right, so the point is, whenever there are people congregating, there will be an attempt to organize. And eventually, Somalia will calm down and have an organization. It's an inevitable type of aspect. It won't be, I don't know, a thousand years from now, you're not going to have Somalia looking like it does today. So in a situation where the world breaks down, Neil Stephenson is saying one of the first places that might reorganize in some type of manner is often very parallel to what you have in the physical world is cyberspace. In this case, being able to get in and see in that spot. Now, when we talk about getting into cyberspace, probably the first aspect of that that you're going to run into in your lives, you're probably not going to be of the right age. It'll, it'll probably happen when you're a little bit older, quite a bit older, and you won't really fit in. So I would say 10 years from now, kids sitting in your seats right now might be there, and you'd be closer to 30, 28 years old, 30, somewhere around there, 27, and it might not be so relevant to you. Once you get around 30, things get a little bit more rigid. But kids 10 years from now will be in a situation where the games, the games that the, the, that the gamers use, which are like virtual worlds that they immerse themselves in, they will have completely fleshed out, very highly realistic headsets. They have them already, but they're not, they're not the way they will be in 10 years. It'll be so realistic, they'll have the glasses that go over your eyes. It'll look a lot like Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash. The, gla the glasses that'll go over, the goggles that'll go over will seal out absolutely everything. You'll be totally immersed. The earplugs will go in. You will be in another world, and it'll be total. Go ahead. Um, I believe that what you're talking about is going to be released as a consumer version within two to three years. That could be. And I'm sort of putting 10 years out there as, an, as, as sort of a maximum. I can't imagine it lasting. But the, some of the technology will be... Well, let us say it was released in two or three years. What are you still talking about? You're still talking... What's going to happen? Now, that's the technology maybe to start getting those goggles really good and the earphones really good. But what else has to catch up? The games themselves are good. They're getting more realistic with every edition, but they're not, like, totally real. Go ahead. I think what you're seeing in Snow Crash is that the economy like starts to depend more on things that happen in that virtual reality than on things that happen in the physical reality. Yeah. And because one of the foremost like companies, like important companies, is like yeah. a pizza delivery. Pizza? Is a pizza delivery. Pizza delivery. Yeah. So things that would have normally really been a mainstay of our economy when the federal government was still intact mm -hmm. have started to fall apart and things that happen in the more organized virtual reality are more important. Things like the hackers and stuff like that are more important. That's 
that's great. And the people with great power in those worlds will be the hackers, the people who can manipulate that. Yeah, exactly right. And people can have great power in virtual reality without necessarily having great power in They can still be depending on a, on a $10 pizza, but have huge power yeah. in the virtual world. Yeah, I mean, that is a heady thing for a lot of young people who will have that ability. So, look, look, let's say you're right, all right, and that the goggles and stuff start coming out better quality. Still, 10 years from now, they'll be much better than even that. Yeah. And the gaming world will have caught up. You have to get that gaming world to catch up as well. In addition, the bandwidth has got a bit of an issue. We've got really great bandwidth. I mean, you know, this started out with, you know, 64-bit modems uh, over the telephone that worked with sound. And everyone thought it was so great when they went to 14K, 14.7K. And then up to 128K for modems. And then when they finally got to the point where they were hardwiring everything and you weren't going through sound systems and you started to get a little better connectivity, the game started to get a little bit better. But still, you know the latency that you have when you surf a web page? You wait a second or two? Well, that's going to have to fade out considerably as well. You can't have a second or two delay when you're actually changing environments. Things have to happen more quickly. you got to get rid of a lot of the jitter. So I'm sort of thinking 10 years, even if some of the elements are really there in a two, in 10 years you're going to have the collection of everything sort of falling into place. In addition to programming for the virtual world, remember in Snow Crash, a lot of programming had to be done to build up those streets, to build up the clubs, to build up the areas, you have to build those areas. And so in 10 years' time, I'm suspecting that the kids coming into this classroom will look at Neil Stephenson's stuff and wonder, I may not even assign it in 10 years. It may be too passe. It may be already like it's already happened, except for the dystopian stuff. But maybe they'll really like it because the virtual world will match what their experience is, but on the other hand, they haven't seen the dystopian elements of society sort of go in. So what happens if you get a Somalia in the United States, a breakdown of the civil society, but you still have a, a, an internet that's connected? You remember, there would once the internet and the software and the machines get sufficiently well advanced, there's going to be a great deal of incentive for people to keep that alive, even if the overall infrastructure dies. So even in a dystopian situation, a lot of people are going to want to keep that connectivity up there. So some resources are going to be sort of pumped into those things. In addition, the hackers may themselves try to keep some of this alive. And so you might have people just by themselves. Um, people just by themselves sort of contributing free. You see, the, I teach a lot of the R programming language. I'm sort of famous for promoting the use of R in for academic research. And, well, that's free. So a lot of people build that software that I depend on for teaching, and they're not getting paid anything for it. So there could be people that would have all of this power in the virtual world. They have a lot at stake for keeping that thing alive and well, keeping it up and going. So that's the type of world we may be running into at some point. 
And even if the dystopian physical aspect doesn't collapse sort of Somali-like, well, you still have the growth of that virtual world that would happen anyway. And it can take on new dimensions that are extraordinary. So, this is a very interesting novel because it's a real thought experiment of what happens in those situations. Now, let's let's actually go to uh, a few places where we can read about And I picked out a couple places to sort of let you focus on what the world is like to those people. So in this case, I'm going to page 190 at the very bottom because they start talking about the viruses. Well, they've been talking about it for quite a while. But the idea is if you're connected in a virtual world, then viruses become a way to manipulate. On the other hand, viruses are becoming one of the great tools of modern medicine. When they want to insert genes into certain spots, heal certain diseases that are genetically related, they got to attach them to a virus. And they take the virus and inject it, and then the, the virus goes in and plants the genes at the right spot. The big difficulties they're having right now, for example, they already have a cure for cystic fibrosis in that way. The problem is that they can't always control where the virus will put the gene. So the virus does have the correct gene, but sometimes it puts it in the wrong spot and you develop leukemia. And sometimes it puts it in the right spot and the person's cured of cystic fibrosis. And so it's a very risky risky procedure. But just the very idea that they now have a carrier that can take the, that can take the gene and put it in the right spot to cure a genetic disease. So if you think about viruses as every symbol to computer programs, which is what they're doing here in Snow Crash, you're talking about coding, coding information, and changing the virtual world, but also changing the, the outside world as well. And sort of that's what this that's what this book brought up in a very early time when people weren't really thinking about you know viruses um, attacking the physical world in the same way that they would have attacked the virtual world. So let's go to page 190 and let me read a little bit. I'm going to the very bottom. The franchise and the virus work on the same principle. What thrives in one place will thrive in another. This is on page 190, the bottom. You just have to find a sufficiently virulent business plan. Condense it into a three-ring binder, its DNA, Xerox it, and embed it in the fertile lining of a well-traveled highway, preferably one with a left-turn lane. Thanks. Not all the way, but leave it a little bit open, about a foot open, okay? Okay, great. Then the growth will expand until it runs up against its property lines. In olden times, you'd, want, you'd wander down to Mom's Cafe for a bite to eat and a cup of joe, and you would feel right at home. It worked just fine if you never left your home, your home, uh, your hometown. But if you went to the next town over, everyone would look up and stare at you when you came in the door. And the blue plate special would be something you didn't recognize. If you did enough traveling, you'd never feel at home anywhere. But when a businessman from New Jersey goes to, what is that, Dubuque or Duquesne? It's Dubuque. Dubuque. What? It's Dubuque. What's that? I think it's Dubuque. Dubuque. That's it. That's right, Dubuque, Iowa. All right, when a businessman from New Jersey 
goes to Dubuque, he knows he can walk into a McDonald's and no one will stare at him. He can order without having to look at the menu, and the food will always taste the same. McDonald's is home, condensed into a three-ring binder and Xeroxed. No surprises, is the motto of the franchise ghetto. It's good housekeeping seal, subliminally blazoned on every sign and logo that make up the curves and grids of light that outline the basin. The people of America, who live in the world's most surprising and terrible country, take comfort in that motto. Follow the logo outward to where the growth is enfolded into the valleys and the canyons, and you find the land of the refugees. They have fled from the true America, the America of atomic bombs, scalpings, hip-hop, chaos theory, cement overshoes, snake handlers, spree killers, spacewalks, <clears throat> buffalo jumps, drive-bys, cruise missiles, Sherman March, gridlock, <clears throat> motorcycle gangs, and bungee jumping. They have parallel parked their bimbo boxes in identical computer-designed burb clave street patterns <clears throat> with secreted and secreted themselves and secreted themselves in symmetrical sheetrock shitholes with the with vinyl floors and ill-fitting woodwork and no sidewalks. Vast house farms out in the Loglo wilderness. A culture medium for a medium culture. The only ones left in the city are street people feeding off debris, immigrants thrown out like shrapnel from the destruction of Asian powers, young bohos, and the techno-media priesthood of Mr. Lee's greater Hong Kong. Young smart people like, um, I forget, is that just David? I forgot how that's pronounced. Uh, you have to, that actually pronounced a certain, I'm just going to say David. Um, David and Hero, who take the risk of living in the city because they like stimulation and they know they can handle it. All right. What do we see here? Let's look at some elements that you see here. What elements do you see here? Let's be daring and talk about some of the elements that you find in this description. And think of the language that's used as well as the physical descriptions of what is being described. This is... Um, you know, the main character of this whole novel. Who's the main character of this whole novel? Hero. Hero. What's that? Hero yeah. protagonist. Perfect. He's a great protagonist. The lead character. Okay. <coughs> so, what's what do you see? What do you see in this? <coughs> if you're to, there's a whole bunch. The reason I put that pulled that passage out is that it has a whole bunch of different elements combined together. So you can say it has different dimensions going on in those few paragraphs. What are the dimensions that you see going on? <coughs> um, <coughs> well, just to re, to re uh, can't what was set, what you just read. Uh, essentially, it was discussing first just how the societal structures were set up and how, like, I remember that little stanza of, like, 
uh, adjectives describing like American culture. There's a lot of incredibly diverse elements to it, and those have manifested themselves in like how how society has separated and structured itself separately. So you could conclude that because of the incredibly diverse like characteristics of the society, they were going to be always going to be more inclined to mm-hmm. form their own little niches of very different living standards. Okay, so we have the, clearly the dimension of these new niches forming up, these new areas, these sub, these sub, so sort of sub-colonization of society. What other elements do you see? Go ahead. Well, in terms of the language, um, a lot of the description is very um, kind of mechanical. The language is really mechanical. It kind of just rolls on and on and on, which is, I think, speaks to the way that society, like, has become physically. It just keeps eating things up. That's interesting. So you're thinking of the language as just sort of having a rolling nature, like rolling hills going on. Yeah, it's uh, without really a, a Without really a central focus for each paragraph, there it's sort of re- we're reflecting the nature of the sort of chaos spread throughout the society. Go ahead. There was a businessman, he was talk. uh, Hero was looking up, like, I forget, it was earlier, like much earlier, who had a quote about, that got cut out of the thing about, like, America just needs more fuel, it like chews people up and spits them out, and it just keeps going and going mm-hmm. and going, and it made me think of that. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so, um, that's a good element, that... You know, I'm, I'm looking for a word to characterize that. And I'm thinking maybe a nice word to use is indifferentiated or undifferentiated. The idea is that you don't have those clearly defined elements like states, cities, federal governments, um, <coughs> clearly defined roles. You have sort of an emerging mess. If you look at cancer, you see under a microscope what used to be nice, neatly organized cells lining, you know, whatever the body part was, it becomes more like an urban sprawl where the houses are just sort of stretching out in a chaotic, unorganized manner. Go ahead. So maybe that sort of undifferentiated elements. Go ahead. I was focusing on the language that's like very scientific, like when it says, when it alludes to a culture medium or a medium Mm -hmm. culture, it's saying like, you know how bacteria grows in a culture, you start off with one and then all of them grow and spread and they're all the same, except in their own different niches. So it's like the mm-hmm. same sort of differentiation and it's like a formula that like America can be explained by like atomic bombs and sculptings and all this stuff. Yeah. Well, what about that thing about them being the same? What is that sort of referring to? This franchise aspect with McDonald's. What is that sort of referring to? in terms of the larger scope of the book. Well, what is something that is involved in the book that makes copies of itself and does the same thing everywhere it goes? The virus. The virus. So in a sense, what is the McDonald's? A virus. In a sense, the McDonald's is a virus. Anything that's organized in a certain way, have a certain purpose that is self-serving, 
and copies itself, is acting like a self-replicating virus. I think the idea is that the loss of individuality that comes with this um, advancement in technology and the collapsing of the federal government is in itself a virus. Like losing the individuality mm -hmm. of like cities and suburbs and people even individually because like in the virtual reality there's like All right. hundreds of thousands of people who look exactly the same. They have no, that's a great idea. Now let's extend that a little bit. What if you're your own physical body and you're going well, you're jogging one day, you're having fun, you're going out to eat, you're at the top of your form, and then you catch a virus, you catch a bug. What happens to you the next day? You got the flu. What happens to you the next day? You're sick, you're bedridden. You're wiped out, right? Yeah. I mean, you're in bed, you're bedridden, I mean, that's the end of you, right? You're down for the count. So what happens when a virus infects you? It starts replicating and starts creating its own environment. Now, you bounce back in a few days because you have a government inside of you, a government of antibodies that get rid of that virus and reestablish the patterns that were already there before the virus came in and disrupted the patterns. So the virus actually is a pattern disruptor. It disrupts the patterns of what was already happening in the body. And then the body has to go to war to reestablish its own patterns. Because your body is nothing more than patterns. You have patterns for how... There are, for example, cancer cells that break out in absolutely every single person's body regularly every day. And what happens? The body recognizes, hey, that's not supposed to be there, and boom, it goes. All right? It's gone. I mean, you don't ever get the cancers because the body is always taking care of that stuff. Why do we know this? Because when you compromise somebody's immune system, they get everything. When you have an immune system that just goes to pieces, they get cancers all over the place. Meaning the body was, you know, just regularly taking care of all that stuff. It didn't even matter what age the person was. The body has its own police force that keeps its own replicating patterns in its own force. And so you stay healthy. Despite the fact that you're walking around in a world with bugs and germs all over the place, your body is healthy. It has a way of maintaining its health. And so you are healthy. Especially as young people, when all the energy of the body is fully fleshed out. Hmm, what happens when some of that energy is not there, when people get older or when they start taking care of themselves in ways that they shouldn't? Smoking, drinking, things that can wear the immune system down, wear themselves down. Well, what happens in situations like that? Well, the smoking and the drinking by itself doesn't kill them or hurt them but it interferes with the patterns that the body would normally do to maintain itself in optimal state. And then the body can't function as well until eventually the liver starts going, the lungs start going, the coughing starts happening. Do you get the idea? Things start to decay. And so what you have is the, the possibility for other patterns to take over, two types. Some patterns are simply the decay of useful patterns that become unuseful because the useful patterns are, no longer have the energy to maintain themselves. And they simply become dysfunctional. And then other times you have the invasion 
of other patterns that are taking advantage of the, spot, of the fact that the government inside the body is no longer able to police it very well. Okay, and that's what you do when you run into abuses, drug abuse, things like that. So what we have here is a society, the parallel is being made here to a society, and the society has patterns, and all those normal patterns have broken down, just like the body would break down when the government no longer can function. So it can't protect its normal patterns. And then you get the replication of other patterns, pizza places, franchises, and in the book, you know, McDonald's, talking about other patterns that just keep on reestablishing themselves their own their own way. And so what we get is in between the physical things that you see happening in the world and virus replication. And if you take that analogy and talk about it in the virtual world, you're talking about virus replication in the virtual world and virus replication in the biological world. So Neil Stephenson has those three themes going on. Always think in terms of patterns that decay and become dysfunctional or are invaded when the, when, the, when the normal patterns that are supposed to be there are no longer functional, new viruses can come in and take advantage of the chaos. So those are the principal themes that you see coming across here, and you have it happening in three world, in three realms. You have it happening in the physical world. You have it happening with, you know, the, with the breakout of, with all of the, uh, the chaos of society. You have it happening in the virtual world with those viruses. And the third realm where Stephenson talks about it is in the biological world with physical viruses that get in. Now, what kind of physical viruses? Actually, they're not quite exactly just physical. What kind of what kind of ways do they have in this book to put viruses into the human? Other than biological viruses like colds, there's another way. The fundamental aspect of this book. And it deals with the... Go ahead. Is it the virtual reality, the bit cards? Like when you hand someone a card and then they rip the card open? And it's related to that, because that is one way where it actually gets conveyed into the biological thing. But there's a way in which people on the outside can actually... They have a whole ship. We're going to get to that near the end. Oh, yeah, the raft. The raft, yeah. So what happens? what happens when people get affected by that kind of virus? It's not like a biological like a cold virus, so it's happening. What happens when you speak to those people? What? How do they talk? It's like a babble. They like all get really... Because there's a metaphor to the Tower of Babel where like... Everyone's speaking all at once. That's right. The language breaks down. They can understand themselves, but you can't understand them. According to the main issue of the novel, back in ancient days, according to Sumerian understandings, there were two beings, and the beings were opposed to one another. And they used to fight each other, and they used to fight each other by trying to influence the masses, and one way that was attempted to influence, to, to sort of fight the others, 
is by to having increased number of languages developed by breaking up the, the uh, ability to have that single uniform linguistic control. So the basic idea that Stephenson raises in terms of a science fiction concept is that in the brain there's sort of a root programming, a, a sort of a cybernetic language that's very deep in the brain stem. You can sort of think of it as like the BIOS of your computer. So you turn on the computer, well the first thing it does is not read the hard drive and load the operating system in. The first thing it does is it reads the BIOS. And the BIOS is sort of a very deep level of programming that's embedded onto a chip. And when it reads that, it sort of says, this is how I'm going to interpret this reality. And then the operating system goes on top of that. So Neil Stephenson was talking about the idea that this BIOS could be in the brainstem. And you could infect somebody so that the language would no longer function the same way. And one of the epiphenomenons would be that you could actually talk to someone and you wouldn't understand what they're talking about. So the viruses attack in three ways. In the overall society, in the cyber world, especially at the very core of the language. And then you capture people. And one of the goals of one of the antagonists in the model, in the, in the book, is of course to capture the whole world that way to control the whole world that way by letting that linguistic type of virus sort of spread out. So you have a lot of things going on in here. <coughs> Let me read another passage. And you know what you have to do on Wednesday, right? You have to bring in a passage and you, you and an talk about it. What's that? And an article. And an article so that you can try to compare it to that, okay? Now this one, uh, this is going to be... Chapter 26 is on page 200. Now, Juanita is Hero's old girlfriend. And they're talking about the virus in the brain, the, the informational virus. And Juanita is the one who's trying to help both David and, and uh, Hero in, in sort of understanding what this is what this is all about. So I'm going to start at the top and read one small, two small sentences and then jump down. Okay? And on page 200. What kind of news are you talking about? Now they're talking about David here. And uh, Hero and Juanita are talking. Actually, let me start at the top. David's not a computer. He can't read binary code. He's a hacker. He messes with binary code for a living. That ability is firm-wired into the deep structures of his brain. So he's susceptible to that form of information, and so are you, homeboy. So, what kind of information are you talking about? Bad news, Juanita says. A metavirus. It's the atomic bomb of informational warfare, a virus that causes any system to infect itself with new viruses. And then he says, that what made David sick. So let me jump down to the bottom of the page. And she's sort of explaining to Hero how this actually happened to David. That Juanita is talking this way does not make any make it any easier for Hero to get back on his feet in this conversation. How can you say that? You're a religious person yourself. <clears throat> Don't lump all religion together, she says. Sorry. All people have religions. It's like we have religion religion receptors built into our brain cells or something. And 
we'll latch onto anything that'll fill that niche for us. Now, religion used to be an essentially used to be essentially viral, a piece of information that replicated inside the human mind, jumping from one person to the next. Now, does you understand how she's talking about religion? I had a brother-in-law from Kenya uh, whose relatives, his sister and family, were born-again Christians, and he was Catholic. And they brought him to the Catholic. To, they brought him to their born-again church because he was trying to be nice and fit in and so on. And then, sort of three quarters of the way through the ceremony, the pastor got up and he was the only new person in the church and announced, "And I feel the Spirit. Is there somebody here who wants to come forward and receive Jesus? I feel there's someone crying out. Someone in the audience right now." wanting to come out. And then there was a long pause. People were all looking at my brother-in-law. <laughs> he, was, he was feeling quite uncomfortable. He was a good Catholic, you know. And then a few minutes later, and I feel, I feel the person wanting to come forward, to come forward. And it went on for about five minutes. So finally they went on and he was feeling more and more uncomfortable. But do you get the idea? They were trying to get that person to come up, my brother-in-law to come up, to say, I see the light and sort of then get the hand on the forehead and sort of get that sort of epileptic shock into the system and become infected by the new pattern of thought which would be the spread of a virus in this sense that Neil, that Neil Stephenson is talking about. Okay. So, now religion used to be essentially viral, a piece of information that replicated inside the human mind, jumping from person from one person to the next. That's the way it used to be and unfortunately that's the way it's headed right now. But there have been several efforts to deliver us from the hands of primitive, irrational religion. <clears throat> the first was made by someone named Enki. Now, this is referring to one of the two quote-unquote gods of the past. So, this guy named Enki about 4,000 years ago. The second was made by Hebrew scholars in the 8th century BC, driven out of their homeland by the invasion of Sargon II. But eventually, it just devolved into empty legalism. Another attempt was made by Jesus. That one was hijacked by viral influences within 50 days of his death. The virus was suppressed by the Catholic Church, but we're in the middle of a big epidemic that started in Kansas in 1900 and is gathering momentum ever since. And Hero jumps in and says, You believe in God or not, Hero says. First things first. She says, definitely. Do you believe in Jesus? And Juanita says, yes, but not the, in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And Hero goes on, how can you be a Christian without believing in that? I would say, Juanita says, how can you be a Christian with it? Anyone who takes the trouble to study the Gospels can see that the bodily resurrection is a myth that was tacked onto the real world several years after the real histories were written. It's so National Enquirer-esque, don't you think? Okay, so what do we have here? <coughs> this is a passage that's filled with stuff. What do you see here? Go ahead. I think it's very interesting that the term um, irrational religion is used. Yeah. Just because to me, like, I mean, a big portion of religion is faith, which isn't, like, it's not supposed to be rational, regardless of whether it is or not, you're supposed to believe in it. 
Um, so the fact that that's kind of like a way of evaluating a religion is kind of very different from how a lot of people see it today. Let's go with one of the things that you just said. It's not supposed to be rational. If it's not supposed to be rational, what is it supposed to be? What's the driving power? Faith. Faith, so what drives one to faith? Hope. Hmm? Hope. I think it's so in terms of stuff that goes yeah. through the mind. What's that? I think it depends on the person. Security, comfort. Like some people turn to religion okay. out of desperation. Let's look at it this way. Some people turn to what it. Was, what, was, what was that preacher expecting from my brother-in-law had he walked forward? For him to accept <clears throat> yeah, but on an intellectual level, or to be welcome, to be welcome. Yeah, but what would it have looked like? To realize like? you're wrong. What's that? To realize that he was wrong. Well, what would it have looked like? You imagine him walking up. What would it have? What would the scene have been like? Would it have been like, he hey, cool, dude, I see that. That's great. Hey, sure, sign me up. I'm all right. Would that? Would, is that what would have happened? Go ahead. He wanted him to truly experience fully what he was asking for. So I assume it'd be like it's kind of an emotional. Emotions. Scene. Look, you got it. Now listen, folks. It's either intellect or emotions. Those are the two big things that power the human mind. Intellect or emotions. So when religions get conveyed, they fill it with a lot of jargon, but ultimately at the core is emotions. Go ahead. Uh, there are people who interpret their religions in an intellectual way. Mm -hmm. Like... C.S. Lewis, uh, writer of Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote several logical books explaining his beliefs on um, mm -hmm. Christianity. And he just explained everything in a completely logical way. Well, whenever you look at religions, almost any religion, you'll see a huge infrastructure building on top of it that gets increasingly... People get, for example, doctorates in canon, in, in canon law in the law of the church. You can get a doctorate and in the laws of the church, in how all of the legal apparatus and the thoughts, and it's very cold, calculated, settled. But what's at the core before all that happens? Faith. Before faith, because faith well, is part of the stuff that happens afterwards, right? There's a lot of criticism. There's a lot of what? Criticism. Criticism? Well, look, let's look at the born-again experience. You must have seen it at least on TV. I mean, there's crying, there's screaming, Yes, I see the light, Jesus, you're coming into my soul, I feel it. And then the preacher slaps you on the head with a wet cloth, and an epileptic shock goes through you. Do you get that? What happens when you have a mental illness, and you get sent to a hospital, and the drugs won't work? What's the last thing they do? Electroshock treatments. And what do electroshock treatments do? They give you a sedative, then they zap the size of the brain, and they cause what? Epileptic. They cause a seizure, an epileptic seizure. Okay. Now, in the old days, they didn't use a sedative, and the person literally had an epileptic seizure. Nowadays, it's just some, you know, they're basically zonked out, and the brain is going through all of that type of... And what is that seizure doing in the brain? They give the electric shocks right to the brain. What is that seizure doing? Hopefully kind of rewiring it. You've got it. It's rewiring. It's resetting. It's rebooting the thing. It's getting... What happens with the mental illness is that patterns develop. That's what happens. People start developing patterns of behavior, patterns of thought, and they become like burned in. 
so that no matter what, you can't just talk to them and get them out of it. It's like burned in, the same things happen. And they get the electroshock treatments and they wipe out those patterns. It's like rebooting your computer after a virus comes in. If you can get rid of the virus and reboot it and, you know, rewrite the hard drive. Do you get the idea? That's what the electroshock treatments do. So basically, one of the most important fundamental elements in rewriting the computer if you get infected is emotion. It's like plugging you right into the socket. All those emotions, it's a way to establish a pattern profoundly, all at once, big time, get the emotional electronic circuitry going through people crying, screaming, uh, slapping on the forehead with a wet cloth. If you listen to some of these features, they actually have it worked out to a pattern of exactly when they hit the forehead, how they build the person up into a frenzy, and then boom, they hit it, and then that person collapses, and then they stand up and say, I've been healed, I've been healed, and they walk off the stage. There's a lot of energy going through that that person. I mean, tons. And it's like an electroshock treatment, but not to eradicate the pattern, but in that case, to establish a new pattern. It's like you're saying, you're burning something onto the hard drive. And emotions is one of those things that can do that. But anything that can rewrite that patterns, rewrite existing patterns, can establish a new, a new, a new way of doing things. And if that new way of doing things is chaotic, you see the breakdown of society and the breakdown of logical thinking, and you get the raft people. Does everyone get it? It's all patterns, replicating patterns. It's everything. The body is nothing but patterns. The mind is nothing but patterns. Find a way into the root stem of the mind. You can rewrite the patterns. You have control of the person. That's what this whole book is about. How these patterns can be manipulated to establish control or to destroy control, destroy existing patterns. But you have nothing but patterns. Patterns that replicate and fight for dominance. Everything is determined by patterns. Okay? And who puts those patterns in? And that's, according to Neil Stephenson, what this whole world is about. Establishing patterns. Don't you see, you came here to this university asking for patterns to be installed in your brains. Oh, I wanted to come here to learn things. I wanted to come here to be an educated person so I could get out and change the world and be the big honcho and do that type of stuff. All right. So that when you walk out, you'd walk into an employment situation looking for a job and they'd say, I see the patterns that I want for that person we want to hire. I'm going to hire this person because that person's acting the right way. That person's speaking the right way. That person's read the right books. That person has the right recommendations. I think that person will go great in that chair. You get the idea? The patterns. And what happens if the person doesn't turn out right? They'll say, I don't like those patterns. Let's look at a classic case of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, in the early days, used to sometimes be walking down the hall and just fall on his knees and start thinking. <laughs> he was almost like a born-again guy, but not in the religious sense, but in the sense of he was messianic about computers. And he was totally revolutionary. What do you have with a revolutionary person? I feel like a revolutionary person doesn't follow the set patterns. They follow the patterns, but then they 
they have that extra step where they go above and beyond everyone else. Okay, so they follow some patterns, otherwise they would just bounce on the society. But then they have something else. And what do they do with that other thing? What is that, what is that other element to do? Go ahead. The ability to create other patterns and instill them in other people. The revolutionary person literally is revolutionary because you start with the existing pattern and then you create another pattern. Like, for instance, Hitler was the kind of person who could create a pattern and convince people or instill it in other people, like a virus. And often what you do is, like in the Hitler situation, you you instill a pattern based on something that's already there, Mm -hmm. change it, manipulate it, amplify it, and there was already anti-Semitism in Germany, so what you could actually do is manipulate that. What's that? You just add pseudoscience to it. Exactly, and then you build it out and you get control of the whole situation. Yes, go ahead. Um, Actually, I was reading an interview with Steve Jobs this morning, so it's weird that that just came up, Um, but something he said is that he had the idea to start the company or for some parts of the company while he was um, on LSD, which I think kind of shows like the how much and how ingrained patterns are in our society that he had to really cha- he couldn't even change his thinking consciously. It had to be like a subconscious drug-induced change in thinking in order to reverse the patterns. Yeah, but what you're actually saying, he was very aware, at least on a subconscious level, of needing to establish new patterns. Mm-hmm and doing whatever he could to break out of but the But it was old. obviously so hard that even when he knew that, he couldn't without yeah. the drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to mention, um, along with like electrocution, electroshock therapy, there's also like plenty of other life-altering experiences that will change the way you think, like near-death experiences, um, drug use, things like that will alter your mind Yeah. and make you think in a completely different way. Very profound experiences change people profoundly because they establish completely contradictory patterns to what we actually had before. And so, with Steve Jobs, what you had is a situation where he was actually feared by the business establishment within Apple Computer because he was so revolutionary. They were scared to death of him, and they eventually just kicked him out, fired him. But his revolutionary way of thinking, he took with the money he had, and he bought Pixar with it, and then he had his, his company, the next computer company. He used that and he invested everything. He, he could have lost everything. He, I mean, he went with, I think it was like $100 million he originally got from Apple and just invested the whole thing. He could have been penniless after that. And then, you know, those companies are sort of, well, the next computer was before your time, but it was basically something he just started. And then... But Pixar was actually a company that was doing other things and he found one guy that was doing... A well, you can see it on YouTube, but he was doing a uh, animation of an alien with one eye singing the old song "I Will Survive, I Can Survive." Um, uh, it's the old disco song by I think it's is it Donna Summers or, um, or was it Diana Ross? I will survive. Anybody on YouTube right now? No, but I can't be. Diana Ross. Pardon me? It's Diana Ross. Yeah, Diana Ross. And I Will Survive, is that the name yes. of the Yeah. So if you do that, you can actually see it. And it's this alien sitting on a chair and this weird-looking female alien walking, I Will Survive. And then as she walks towards the camera, she's singing, I Will Survive. And then a disco ball just collapses on her head and crushes her. <laughs> she obviously didn't make it. So the first time I showed that to my son when he was very little, it, you know, my wife was 
looking at and 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 he was sort of shocked and she looked at it and she screamed at me why did you let my son see something like that and then my son sort of realized what actually happened and then about it was a delay of about 10 seconds and he burst out laughing he thought it was the funniest thing the point is that Steve Jobs saw that and said to heck with what the company was doing beforehand if we could do that with motion pictures we'd be huge this is better than Disney and then we had Pixar and in fact, they walloped Disney, and Disney eventually bought them. And so the point is that this revolutionary thinking is where you start with something that's there and then just add a new element. And so they, they, they ended up doing new patterns. Okay, so the, the, this, whole, this whole idea of having religions as establishing patterns is, like, is huge in this, because what he talks about here is the development of a new religion, with that new virus. Okay, now let's uh, let's jump over to page 229, okay? I have another thing because it often is talking, it's talking more about this religion thing, so I wanted to sort of keep focusing on the religion thing. Page 229, this is on chapter 30. <coughs> And so we'll go, well, let's actually go halfway down. And um, he's talking about Moses and the time of the, you know, of those time with the Pharisees and the Hebrews at Jerusalem back in the old, old days, okay? And about halfway through the page, 229, Deuteronomy is the only book of the, Penta, uh, of the Pentateuch that refers to a written Torah as comprising the divine will. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, that which is in charge of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment neither to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Okay, now. Now here I was saying, so the Deuteronomists codified the religion, made it into an organized self-propagating entity. That's That's the element that's consistent throughout this whole novel. Hero says, I don't want to say virus, but according to what you just quoted me, the Torah is a virus. It uses the human brain as a host. The host, the human, makes copies of it, and more humans come to synagogue and read it. I cannot process an analogy, but what you say is correct insofar as uh, as this. After the Deuteronomists had reformed Judaism, instead of making the sacrifices, the Jews went to synagogue and read the book. If not for the Deuteronomists, the world's monotheists would still be sacrificing animals and propagating their beliefs through the oral tradition. Let's turn the page, 230. Sharing needles, Hero said. When you were going over this stuff with Legos, and he was that hoodie type guy, thug type guy, 
Did he ever say anything about the Bible being a virus? He said it had certain things in common with the virus, but that it was different. He considered it a benign virus, like that used for vaccinations. He considered the Asherah virus to be more malignant, capable of being spread through exchange of bodily fluids. So the strict book-based religion of the Deuteronomists inoculated the Hebrews against the Asherah virus. In combination with strict monogamy and other kosher practices, yes, the librarian said, the previous religions from summer up to Deuteronomy are known as pre-rational. Judaism was the first of the rational religions. As such, in Lego's view, it was much less susceptible to viral infection because it was based on fixed written records. This was the reason for the veneration of the Torah and the exacting care used when making new copies of it. Informational hygiene. And what do we see about all this? This was a guy who was investigating a lot of this stuff and he disappeared. We'll get to more of that later. What do you say about this? I'm going to read some more on the next page, but I want to have some discussion of this first. Go ahead. So, I uh, like a broad, some, something broad that you can extract from it. So maybe that the more institutionalized something is, harder it is for patterns, outside patterns to come in and actually do damage. Because All right. Well, the institutionalization that occurs afterwards can help really establish the routinized reinforcement of these patterns. Like if you go to a Catholic church and sit into Mass, you'll notice it's essentially a written experience, meaning the same words are being said at the same time throughout the whole thing. I mean, it's like a... Talk about the word dogma. It's it's about repeating those patterns in the exact same form. And when they make a major decision, to them, a major decision is deciding if a word should be changed to another word. And then the entire church has to say it with you. For example, they used to say up until just like just like a year ago, uh, the Lord be with you, and then the congregation would say, and also with you. That was like going back since the beginning of time. And then they finally decided in the Pope's hierarchy to say, we're going to change that. And it went through a lot of thinking so that the Lord be with you, it was going to be changed to, and also with you instead, and with your spirit. And they were changing the pattern, changing the reinforcement virus according to this thing. It used to be funny, I used to canter in a number of Catholic churches, including the Basilica downtown, when I had nieces coming over. When they ever used to say, the Lord be with you, and they said, and also with you, I used to whisper in my niece's, my niece's ear when they said, the Lord be with you, and then I'd say, and Scooby-Doo, because it sounded, it rhymed with, and also with you, and Scooby-Doo. You know, the, the dog. Anyway, they thought it was outroariously funny, but then I got in trouble all the time for making the girls laugh in the middle of the mass and everything. But there was nothing that could be rhyming so easily when they said, and with your spirit. I mean, Scooby-Doo just doesn't rhyme with spirit. So that was the end of that joke. But the point is, it was me trying to sort of break up the pattern. I'm a person who's revolutionary, sort of, in thinking and basically all the ways that I do things. And 
I don't like the idea of patterns so much when you have reinforcing patterns. So humor is a nice way to sort of break up patterns. I sort of do that sometimes. But the basic idea that they're talking about here is two different types of ways of communicating. And one can fight the other. How are they establishing the pattern? How are they establishing one virus according to this passage? Remember we said... Are they establishing it? What's that? Are you asking how they established it? Yeah, for example... Uh, he considered the uh, Asherah virus to be more malignant, capable of being spread through the exchange of bodily fluids. That was the first virus. Remember Enki? So what was the what was the nature of that virus? We think of viruses that can actually affect how you feel physically, but what kind of virus are they talking about now? It is a, literally a biological virus, but what kind of virus, what does it do? Go ahead. Anybody? Well, look, if a virus can affect your DNA, what could it else? It could affect anything. Theoretically, there's no reason why a virus couldn't be designed to... It's like a really, it's like a really complicated mental illness, almost. What's that? It's like a really complicated, contagious mental illness, almost. Well, you're getting at it. According to the book, you're, you're talking about if it's a mental illness, what you're talking about is that a physical virus could, in a sense, cause a mental change. And you're calling it a mental illness. Or, well, yeah. But, I mean, because they're talking about it in terms of a virus, and generally we think of viruses. As but maybe it could be just causing a certain type of it, pattern. It reminds me of the rainbows and you got to believe me. Yeah. Look at it this way. Remember early in the semester we talked about how people have a genetic predisposition according to the research that's been published in the leading journals in political science based on the analysis of twins that if people have a genetic predisposition to being conservative or liberal, remember that? Mm -hmm. That you don't really have total free will on just thinking, that there is a genetic basis for your thinking. Now if viruses can be used to attack the genetics or to change the genetics, then is it so far-fetched to think that a virus could be used to create a populace that is prone to think a certain way? I mean, it's just That's the next really step, scary. right? What's that? That's very scary to think that you can change as well. I'm sure it wasn't picked up. We don't have I said that's actually very scary to think that someone can control by like purposely releasing a virus. That's exactly right. Um, that is control scary. an entire area. That's exactly right, and that is scary. But there's no logical reason why it couldn't happen. Go ahead. That's like uh, in the Foundation series with the mule, where you can like control people's like emotional levels. Yeah. Of it's just that, except in a virus. Level. In a level of a virus, yeah. But do you realize it's not technologically impossible to think of how that could happen? If you can take a virus and insert a gene to cure cystic fibrosis, then you can take a virus to insert a gene to change somebody from being a natural conservative into a natural liberal, or vice versa. Isn't that weird? Establishing a new tendency, a new pattern. Okay? So anyway, what they're talking about here is a way to stop that. So... According to Snow Crash's interpretation of the countervirus, the way to inoculate it was, the, so the strict book-based religion 
of the Deuteronomists inoculated the Hebrews against the Asherah virus or the biological virus. So a knowledge-based virus was being used to protect against a genetic-based virus. Isn't that interesting? But they both get at patterns. Can you imagine a war on that level? Isn't that war of the highest level? Where you're trying to manipulate huge populations, the way they think, the way they operate? You're not trying to conquer them with guns and force them into submission. You're changing the essence of who they are. And you can do that literally by establishing patterned behavior. You can't get into an argument with someone who's got really serious patterned behavior about a religion. How many times have you got an argument about uh, somebody's religion and then they started to defend it? There's no way they're going to change, right? The patterns are so deeply embedded, they will not change. Well, that's a vaccination, isn't it? That person's been immunized against almost anything. That's what the level of talking about. Go ahead. There's a study uh, about um, beliefs, where when you argue your belief, and then someone like counters your argument, there's a tendency in in like how you think to ignore what they say. Yes. It just goes. Yes, that's, that's a well-established fact. They know that it's you. It's called selective perception. You perceive only that which matches the internal patterns that you already have. And those things that don't match it are simply gone. In fact, there are well-established cases where they've found that people certain candidates and project onto those candidates what their own patterns are. For example, during the Ronald Reagan campaign against Jimmy Carter, they did lots of studies, and the people were people that were looking at Ronald Reagan were... Project, they loved the, the, the television image that he conveyed, and he was running as a conservative, but when you interviewed people and said, what does Ronald Reagan believe? They didn't say back what he believed. They said back what they believed. And they said, he believed, and they would be coming up with all types of things that he wasn't talking about, but he said, no, he must believe in this. They were projecting on it. So, either the ideas that Reagan was actually physically saying were going right through the people and it just was bouncing. Or, and this is a study in science, in the social sciences, or there was some way of transmitting a, a, the physical image of Ronald Reagan was in a sense like, a, like the, the vector for getting that information that they wanted through. Meaning, so that was a case where the physical image, the television aura, the charisma, acted as a transmission vector for the vote Republican behavior that they were trying to establish. Fascinating how this can work. Look, on Wednesday, I have a passage from the second half of the novel from page 231 on and an article that you can talk about. Okay, you can, If you're really honing in on something that happened earlier, that's okay too, but if you have a chance, try to look for something later in the novel article as well and have that passage ready to go and I'll see you on Wednesday be there or be square